We are preaching on the subject of the second coming of Jesus Christ. This morning, let's turn together in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter, the third chapter. We'll begin with verse 1. Second Peter 3, beginning to read with verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second epistle that I write unto you. And in both of them I stir up your sincere mind by putting you in remembrance, that you should remember the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first, that in the last days mockers shall come with mockery, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For from the day that the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willfully forget that there were heavens from of old and an earth compacted out of water and amidst water by the word of God, by which means the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens that now are and the earth by the same word have been stored up for fire being reserved against the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But forget not this one thing, beloved, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall be dissolved with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing that these things are thus all to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy living and godliness, looking for and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God, by reason of which the heavens being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. But, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Please again join me as we bow together and pray. 
Our Father, our minds and our hearts are attuned to this world. And because we are so accustomed and uh, to thinking of and so attached to this world, we find it often difficult to feel the weight of the dreadful day that is coming to this world when your son returns. We find that when we meet to worship, often it's perfunctory. Our zeal wanes. We look for all kinds of excuses for our lack of zeal and our lethargy. But alas, we have no excuses in the light of such a warning and of such a day of judgment. Oh Lord, we need your Spirit to make us to feel and to see and understand this dreadful day and to live in the light of it. We pray that today you would so deal with us in our hearts and in our minds that we would become those that live every moment with great sobriety and seriousness and appropriate sense of urgency at the thought of the coming day of the Lord when everything on which our feet this morning stand and on which we sit and on which many of us have trusted will disappear. Oh Lord, help us. We need help. We need grace for your word to penetrate where it ought and to do its work. Leave us not to our own devices. We confess our weakness. We confess the preacher's weakness in making things clear. We pray for grace. Help us, O Lord, and subdue this congregation to your mind and will. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now we've sought to lay out before you the nature of the second coming of Christ by concentrating on three aspects of the nature of it. First, it'll be supernatural. Second, the Lord will come bodily and visibly. Third, it'll be sudden, like a thief in the night. Then, we've established the beginnings of the purpose of the second coming. We have said in the first place that Christ is coming back in order to bring to full glory himself and his people to establish the kingdom of God on the earth in its full, radiant manifestation. We also saw that when he himself is glorified, that his people will be glorified with him. And so the bringing to the full glory of Christ and his kingdom is at the same time the bringing to full manifestation, his saving work in his people, and the finishing of the application of their redemption. And then we noted that because that's what he's going to do, that we may summarize the purpose of his second coming by saying that it is to complete the work of redemption. For the glory of Jesus Christ is nothing more than the glory of his saving power and his grace. His name is Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins completely, ultimately, perfectly. Save his people from their sins. So he is Christ, the anointed king, coming to deliver his people. We noted that 
There's a strict and very vital relationship between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. The second coming is not to be studied apart from an accurate understanding of the first coming. The purpose for the second coming is essentially the same as the purpose of the first, to save his people. The first was to inaugurate that salvation, to accomplish that redemption by his sacrifice once for all for his people. The second is to consummate and finish the application of that which he in the first coming accomplished. Then he sent his spirit between the first and the second comings in order to begin applying that accomplished redemption from the first coming. And when he comes the second time, he will finish what the Spirit has been applying all during these last days between His first and second coming. So that leads us today to consider the following. The effective conclusion and consummation of the work of redemption will be the removal of sin and all its consequences from the earth. I'm waiting for some of you to wake up. Let's, I've already started. Join up with me. There are three or four of you. I'm, it bothers me as a preacher, and that's why I stopped, just to give you a chance. Catch up with me. We are in the middle of our sermon already. Let's go with it. The effective conclusion and consummation of the work of redemption. In other words, he's coming for the purpose of completing the work of redemption. And the effective carrying out of that completed work will be nothing less than the final and utter removal of sin and all its consequences from the earth, not to mention from the heaven. This is the goal of God's saving work, to restore that which has been broken and ruined. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. We'll refer back to Second Peter later. But in Acts chapter 3, there's an interesting comment made by Simon Peter. Beginning in verse 18, in his sermon, before his arrest and being brought up before the Sanhedrin, in verse 18 of Acts 3, here's what he preaches, understanding as the apostles did, the true import of Old Testament prophecy. He says, But the things which God foreshowed by the mouth of all the prophets, in other words, the central, long-range direction of all the Old Testament prophets, what they all ultimately pointed to in their prophecy was what he's about to declare to them. That his Christ should suffer. He thus fulfilled. What all the prophets said was going to happen. Christ is going to suffer. God fulfilled it. Now there's application to be made to that statement. Fulfilled prophecy produces application. Here's what he says, therefore, verse 19. Repent you, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Now stop a minute and think. He's speaking to Jews. And what is the issue of their need? Is it protection from Romans that is his concern? No. 
It is it is it being noted among the world as the best people in the world? No. It is is it racial superiority? No. It is their sins. Now the reason I say it again, there nothing could be more pertinent to this hour in our history in understanding the Bible. The Bible and its message is currently being undermined by multitudes of evangelical Christians who expect that this war in the Middle East explains Old Testament prophets in a way that never was understood by the apostles. And they are making a little skirmish in a desert to be tantamount to the fulfillment of specific prophecies in the Old Testament. But the primary emphasis of the Old Testament prophets, all of them according to Simon Peter, was the pointing to the sufferings of Christ, and he had to suffer not because the Romans were putting down the Jewish nation, but because his people were sinners. And the application of that first coming was Turn from your sins, so they'll be blotted out. So that, he continues, there may come seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, whom the heaven must receive until the times of what? restoration of all things whereof God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets that have been from of old they preached about his sufferings and they preached about his glories to follow in his sufferings he dealt with the guilt and the punishment of their sins in the glories to follow he will restore everything that had been broken down by that sin. The restoration of all things. You see that? The Old Testament prophet's picture was Messiah's coming. He's going to suffer for our sins. Isaiah 53 and other passages. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's going to suffer for our sins. That's the problem and that's the solution. But that's not all. Not only is he going to suffer, he is going to ascend and sit on the throne of David, ruling over his Israel until all his enemies and ours are put under his feet. Even the ultimate and last enemy, which is death. And he's going to reign until that happens. And then one day, the full manifestation of his glorious kingship is going to be unveiled for the world. And when's that going to take place? When he comes from the heavens, who must receive him until the restoration of all things. He's coming back in his glory to restore all things. So what we're saying is that what he's going to do in the consummation of redemption is to remove sin and its consequences from, this, from the created universe. He's going to separate sin out. That's the completion of the work of redemption. That's the goal. There will be no more sin in the kingdom of Christ. That's what he's coming to. There's not going to be a place where he rules where there be sin. His government, his house, his dwelling place will be pure from sin. 
The earth will be cleansed. So the restoration of all things waits for the time when the heavens will send him back. Now the problem is man's sin. That's what Acts 3 makes clear. The solution is Jesus Christ the Lord. In his suffering, in his appointment for us, in being the prophet, if we read further in this passage in Acts, there's going to be a prophet the Lord is going to raise up from among the people. Hear everything he says. And anyone that will not do what everything he says will be cursed and cut off. And then this servant is going to be raised up to bless. The house of Israel, verse 26 says. And how is he going to bless the house of Israel? Verse 26 says, in turning every one of you from your sins. Not necessarily in giving you temporal military victories in war. Not to establish a building made with men's hands that no man can bother. Not by restoring the Jew to his Jewish superiority. Not that. Not even to give Gentiles any superiority. It's neither one of those. But to turn you away from your sins. That's how he's going to bless you. In turning you from your sins. And any Jew or Gentile. Who does not intend to deal with his personal sin. In reference to Christ. Is not going to be blessed by Christ. There's no blessing. On anyone in the earth. Apart from the reckoning with sin. Turning from it. Living God's way in obedience to Christ. And love for him. There is no blessing from God. Apart from Christ. And the deliverance from sin. From the love of it, from the penalty of it, from the power of it. The problem is sin. The solution is Christ. But listen to the method and the timing. The method and timing of God is, first, the way he dealt with sin. Vicarious atonement accomplished by his suffering servant. The first coming. Second, the granting to the Jews and the Gentiles repentance unto life by the Holy Spirit that was sent. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that in at least two places, in Acts chapter 5, again in Acts 11, we're told that God has come to grant repentance to the house of Israel. And in chapter 11, he has given repentance unto life to the Gentiles. And in each case, it was the work of the Holy Spirit that was being concentrated upon as the apostles were preaching. Well, God has given the Gentiles the Spirit, just as he did with us at the beginning. When the gospel was first preached to us, the Spirit was given to prove that it was Messiah, Jesus, was Christ and King. Now, he's poured that same Spirit out upon the Jew Gentiles. Well, that proves then that he's saving Gentiles too. And in each case, the text in Acts 5 and again in Acts 11, he has granted repentance to Israel. He has granted repentance to the Gentile. And so the first thing is the sacrificial atonement, the vicarious atonement of Christ for our sins, then the sending of the Spirit to give us repentance, the application of redemption. And then finally, in the last place, the deliverance of the entire cosmos from the bondage of sin and its corruption. First, he makes atonement, then he applies it by granting repentance to his people, and then finally he's going to deal with the whole universe and cleanse it from its sin. That's the order and the method by which God is going to complete the work of redemption. But today we're going to consider how that consummation is going to come to about. How is he going to remove sin from the world and finish the work of redemption? And we'll begin to consider today some of the significant realities connected 
with the second coming of Christ. Some significant realities connected with the second coming of Christ. I wish I had time to explain to you all the reasons why this is important. But what I'm going to try to do is to show you that there are certain things that are going to happen when he returns the next time that are going to happen in his coming, at his coming, when he comes, they are concomitants of his coming. We must understand that. And when we do, our eschatology is going to have a lot better easy path of getting established. Once we get the scripture clear of what's going to happen when Jesus comes, then a whole lot of other stuff is going to fall off like autumn leaves from our theology if our theology is not correct. But there's more than that. I want to bring you to a place of great sobriety and of heart searching to seriously consider what kind of person you better be in the light of what we're going to hear opened up from the scripture, what we've already read this morning. Well, the first two points, the two that I hope to finish today, regarding significant realities associated with the second coming of Jesus Christ, are these. First, when Christ comes the second time, the next time, there will be the full revelation of the glorious kingdom of Christ with no opportunity for later decline. The full revelation of the glorious kingdom of Christ with no opportunity of later decline. Now, we've already considered the glorification of Christ and his kingdom. We've already dealt with that. And I don't intend to repeat all of that. But the emphasis I'm placing on that at this point in terms of the significant reality associated with his second coming is that when that kingdom is glorified and manifested at his coming, it will be a kingdom that will never again pass away or decline. There will be no possible opportunity for that established glorified kingdom ever to be anything less than it is in that hour when it's magnified. Now, some of you that are familiar with certain eschatological opinions will already understand the significance of that statement. But I'm going to let you form some of your own conclusions before I tell you what I believe that significance is. Turn with me first to some texts of Scripture so you can see that I didn't bring this, pull this out of my mystical hat. Matthew chapter 24. I would beg of us to be content as best we can with the plain language of Scripture. I'll borrow the phrase of some who are crassly literal and have no sympathy with position that I hold. I want us to be let the Scripture speak plainly as much as we possibly can. In Matthew 24, verse 29, in the great discourse regarding the Two events concerning the apostles, the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming and end of the world. The Lord speaks of what's going to happen immediately after the great tribulation. Now let me suggest to you that this tribulation is, according to this passage, if I understand it, has been taking place through the whole age. They will deliver you up, verse 9, they shall deliver you up into tribulation, shall kill you. You shall be hated of all the nations for my name's sake. He's speaking to apostles and those associated with the apostles. It started in the first century. 
It has happened in every generation of the church since then. Tribulation. John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, writes to seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century and says, I, John, am your fellow sufferer in the tribulation which is in Jesus. He doesn't make any distinction in that passage or this one between the tribulation and the great tribulation. There is no such thing in the Bible. It has to be manufactured by the imagination of the interpreter. The Bible never speaks of, of the great tribulation as somehow different in kind from that which is typical of the church in every age. Somebody says, well, what about the seven years in the book of Revelation? The Revelation never speaks of a seven-year tribulation. Find it, I'll change my statement. There is no mention in the book of Revelation of a seven-year period. Not once. You say, well, our pastor, Alvin, is too. No, there's not. I used to preach it. There's not. I read the book. It's not there. There is a mention of 42 months, 1260 days. Somebody says, yeah, but that's, see, that's it. That's half of seven years. That's three and a half. And I said, where do you get the seven? They say, from Daniel's 70th week. And we've already studied Daniel. We've got the tapes. Go consider our position in the book of Daniel. The tribulation he is speaking of is at the immediate end of this age in which the church has been surrounded by the devil and his hosts and been persecuted and troubled and fearful. Immediately after that, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And notice what's happening when he comes. The whole universe is going to rattle and roll and shake. And when's it going to happen? When he comes. The sign of his coming is his coming. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. We read that in Revelation 6. And they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send forth his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Now you just read that. And you, you tell me how you can draw out of that two different stages of the second coming. He mentions two things. He's coming and the tribes of the earth are going to mourn. Why are they going to mourn? Because he's coming into the great day of his wrath. Revelation 6. But he's going to do something else. When he comes, not only is the universe going to be shaken and the wicked mourn because wrath has come, he's going to call his elect and gather them with a great trumpet sound from the four corners of the earth, all in the same time. Now, if you want to get picky and say, well, which comes first? Now, there could be seven years between the two. Well, he speaks of the judgment first. The destruction of the world is spoken of first. The fear of the tribes of the earth is spoken of next. And the rapture of the church is spoken of third. So if there's a separation in time, get it in biblical order and be logical. He's going to judge the world first and then seven years later he's going to... That's not the way the theory comes in my mind, in what I've been taught. Be literal. Be consistent. Don't force us into a mold that doesn't reflect biblical truth. But notice how he's coming. Great power and glory. And it's in that great glory, revelation, that the saints are going to be gathered, the elect. Somebody said, no, that's talking about the elect Jews, the 144,000. Brethren, nowhere in my Bible do I find a text that separates Jews from Gentiles in the great election of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We're all the same people of God. And if you study carefully the 144,000 in Revelation, we have the tapes on that too. We shouldn't have to take time to teach things all over and over again. We welcome you to hear them and then ask questions. But if that 144,000 list is studied carefully, you'll notice it is not appropriate to an Old Testament list. It's changed. It's different. The order is different. A couple of tribes are omitted and one is added that doesn't fit. There's a lot of symbolism there. And if you'll learn what the symbolism represents, it'll help free you from some of the problems associated with some strange doctrines originated in the last couple of hundred years. Then look over at chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 31. Now, remember, chapter 24, he's speaking of the Son of Man coming in his glory. Chapter 25, he refers to the same event, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, same, same thing he said in chapter 24 that we just read, and all the angels with him, then shall he sit on the throne of his glory. And what will he do at that coming? Before him shall be gathered all the nations. And he shall separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll set the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. So, in the same glorification, in the same glorious coming in which he calls the elect from the four corners of the earth, he's also going to judge the nations and separate them. He's going to come on the throne of his glory. He's coming as a king in glory. His kingdom is being fully manifested to all the world. And when they see him, they're going to mourn. Oh, the day of the wrath of the Lamb who's on the throne has come. His kingdom is going to be established in full view in the earth. He's coming to the earth. And he's going to clean up the earth. The universe is going to shake. The wicked are going to be judged. The righteous are going to be blessed. Now that's what we've read on the surface. Now, some would argue and say, but you haven't dug into the deeper things of prophecy. Brethren, I have too. I got all mixed up in the deeper things. A lot of it wasn't deep. It was just muddy. It just looked deep. Sometimes what looks deep ain't deep. It's just confusing. And some of us were afraid to voice our serious questions in those days because we knew of no Orthodox Christians who believed anything different. And we had our doubts and we'd read our Bible and we couldn't for the life of us see it. But we said, well, they must be seeing something we can't see. Later on, some of us gained enough courage to go back and ask the questions and search out. And then we discovered there were some Orthodox Christians who had a different viewpoint. That helped us. It's always valuable to study what others read, write uh, about the Bible, especially those that love the Bible. Because sometimes you need a little encouragement, don't you, from others who have questioned the same things you've questioned. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I don't want to belabor this, and for some I know it may be a belaboring because you already have this straight, but there are some among us, brethren, who are still struggling with these things and who sincerely want help in teaching. And this pulpit exists for teaching God's people. And if we quit teaching you, we quit having a reason to exist. In Hebrews 12, verse 26, which we've read in recent days, which speaks of the voice of the Lord. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more will I make to tremble not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word, yet once more. Now notice, once more he's going to tremble, make the earth tremble. Not twice more, not three times more, once more. 
We've already seen in Matthew that's going to happen when Jesus comes in the clouds with great glory to gather the elect and to punish the wicked. Yet once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaken. And literally that word is shakable. The removing of things that can be removed. As of things that have been made. In other words, the carnal physical universe, things made. That those things which are not shaken or shakable may remain. That we're receiving a kingdom, verse 28, that cannot be shaken. And I submit to you, if you just from what we've read so far, will couple Second Peter 2 about the melting of the elements of the universe... Matthew 24 and 25 about the rattling of the universe and the shaking of the world, the moon, the sun, the stars, and all the things coming apart. This text, you put it all together just so far, it's going to be very difficult for you to have any confidence in the rebuilding of an earthly Palestinian kingdom over in Palestine because that's shakable. Everything sitting on dirt and sand and salt and water is going to shake. And what is material and what is temporal is going to disappear. And burn up and melt and go away and be dissolved. What's shakable, God's going to shake it. The only thing that will remain is that which is not shakable. We, he says, receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That means it's a spiritual, unshakable, eternal, heavenly kingdom. We don't put our confidence in an earthly, temporal, temporary kingdom. We don't have confidence in a temporal, carnal temple. Our carnal nation, our carnal kingdom. We receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're speaking of the glorious manifestation of the kingdom of Christ with no opportunity for later decline. That's what I'm trying to show you. The significance of this kingdom is it's permanent, unshakable. And that's what he's going to unveil when he returns. But there are other texts. Go to Daniel chapter 7. And I'm always amazed at how many prophets modern day speak of Daniel but never do address this issue. Or at least when they pass over it, they so muddle it. You see, the great theme of Daniel, the great joy and blessing of Daniel is that there's coming a kingdom that nobody's going to be able to supersede. All the kingdoms of this world are going to rise up against each other. The Assyrians first, the Babylonians, then the Medes and Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And all those are going to supplant each other. But there's a little stone that's going to be cut out of a mountain. And that little stone is going to be starting a new kingdom. And out of that stone, there's going to be a kingdom that will never fail. That's the great message of Daniel. Not the detailed prophecies of a complex system of eschatology that has to do with Middle East and Palestinians and Arabs and Jews. It's a kingdom that's not going to be temporal and temporary and, and carnal. And no other king after this one establishes his kingdom is ever going to rise up and challenge it. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold there came with the clouds of heaven one like to the Son of Man. He came even to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And what did the Ancient of Days give to the Son of Man? There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. That's Daniel's clear message. Now let me just inject at this point. A conclusion. 
When Jesus Christ comes in the clouds of glory, sitting on the throne, the kingdom throne of glory, judging the wicked, gathering the elect, destroying the cosmos, it is in order to put a kingdom in place that will never again pass away. It is not in order to put a kingdom in place that will last a thousand years and then be shaken. You understand what I'm saying? So far, is anything we've read given you any indication of any other picture and development? What's going to happen when he comes? He's going to show the world his kingdom. And what is the nature of that kingdom? It'll not pass away. Not an earthly, temporal, shakable kingdom that later on will have to pass away when the earth is finally destroyed again. Because that's already happened. It's a heavenly kingdom brought to earth in its full glory of everlasting permanence. And to establish anything less than that after that is a come down at least. Brethren, our hope is not an earthly temporal millennium of, of, of the, in the description that some have described it. I believe in the millennium. But I don't understand it to be something that's going to be stretched out over a temporary period of even a long period after Jesus returns. What's going to be stretched out after Jesus returns is his everlasting dominion. Now, we've got more to say. But before we do, turn to Revelation chapter 5. Because I don't want to leave you with just an Old Testament witness. I want you to have a New Testament witness. The apocalypse of the New Testament says as much. Revelation 5.13. And verse 12, Revelation 5.12, cannot refer to the glorious kingdom of the Lamb of God without first referring to the sufferings of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that has been slain. You always connect the two. He comes on the clouds of glory because He came in the humiliation of the cross. He earned the right to come in the clouds of glory because he humbled himself and obeyed even to the death of the cross. So he's worthy to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And verse 13 says, Every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things that are in them. In other words, <coughs> everything God made in this planet and above this planet and beneath this planet including water and land dwellers and everything, heard I saying, unto him that sits on the throne. What throne? That's the throne of his glory on which he's going to come. And unto the Lamb be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the dominion forever and ever. This is not a picture of another limited earthly, carnal, temporal kingdom. This is a picture of a universal, everlasting, glorious, righteous kingdom that will never wane. All the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. And they're not going to have any place in the future to rise up again and challenge it. His kingdom right now is growing like leaven in a loaf of bread, like in a lump of dough. Invisible to most, except those who see by the eye of faith. Gradual, like a mustard seed, starting small, and finally it's going to house the birds of the 
air in the trees. Uh, it's right now existing alongside of tares. The wheat's growing up and it's still in the midst of the wicked and we're not separated yet. But in the last day, Jesus is coming and going to make the separation. And the wheat and the tares are going to be separated. There are not going to be tares left in his kingdom. There's going to be nothing but wheat. And it's going to be an everlasting kingdom wherein dwells righteousness. That's what we read in 2 Peter 3. Brethren, it's so clear to me, I'm still flabbergasted that many don't see it. And I'm not mad that they don't see it because I have some good, dear, reformed brethren who don't agree with me at this point. Not many, but some. But I'm still flabbergasted because it looks so plain to me. You say, well, that doesn't prove anything. Well, I know it doesn't, but I'm not alone in the plainness of my understanding. These texts I've taken to show you that when the Lord comes, this universe is going to be rattled and shaken so that what remains will never be shaken again. Let me just make one more word of application. After Jesus Christ returns, there will be no more wicked people left in the earth to rise up a thousand years later to challenge his throne. I ask you, where are they going to come from? He's already judged them all. Isn't that what we've read? When he comes, the day of his wrath has come. Hide us, mountains. He's not going to judge them, separate them, remove them, and then a thousand years later, from among the world over which he's been ruling in Jerusalem, a bunch more are going to rise up and come out of the righteous. They're not, that's not the point of his coming. His coming is going to put an end to all that challenge to his kingly rights. An end! Not just a kick in the breeches, but a cutting off of the head. He's not just going to slap him around a little and say, get out of here for a while. I'll let you come back in a thousand. That's not the point. He's going to manifest the absolute ultimate triumph of his kingdom once for all. Did we not read it in Second Peter chapter 3? But we look for a new heaven... And a new earth which is characterized by righteousness without any mixture. That's the picture. That's the glorious hope of the saints. But that leads us to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think this clinches the argument biblically. And I many times I'm content with two or three witnesses in the scripture from a point that we make. But I've multiplied the witnesses because... I just don't want to leave it too little. I want to I want to pound that thing into the concrete. It took me too many years to come to this myself, brethren. That old stuff doesn't die hard. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. Again, we started this series by saying that we are not assuming that anyone who doesn't agree with us isn't a Christian or isn't a godly man. But I cannot let myself preach it as though there's some chance I don't believe what I'm preaching. Because some good men don't agree with me. I've got to preach it the way I believe it. And the way I'm convinced of it. And try to persuade you biblically. I welcome your biblical cogent arguments against it. Privately. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 23. Speaking of the resurrection. Each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then they that are Christ's, when will they rise, Christians? At his coming. Then 
when they rise at his coming, the end. The translators insert the word cometh, but that's not in the original, but literally, then the end. Then, at his coming, the end. When he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, his Father. Even the Father. When he shall have abolished all rule and all authority and power. Now, from that text, many premillennialists say, see, that's what we're talking about. He's going to come. He's going to start his reign. And then for a thousand years, he's going to be reigning. And he's going to let some folks sort of hover around in quiet under his rule of rod, the rod of iron. They'll be against him, but they can't say it publicly because he's, going to, he's got too much power. But at the end of that period, he's going to loosen the reins a little and let them come up and gather together and fight him in Jerusalem. There's going to be a big war of Armageddon or something else. Some call it Armageddon. Some call it a second war. They're going to surround Jerusalem and Jesus is going to be on the throne and then he's going to wipe them out finally for the end. Because he's got to reign, they say, until he puts all rule and authority and power under him. And that's why he's coming back to set up that reign so that he can start beating them down and defeating them. And finally, after the thousand years, he'll do it. The next verse. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. See, it makes clear there's going to be a thousand year reign after he comes. No, no. No, no. Verse 26 explains. The last enemy that shall be abolished is death. Now, what is the subject of the first of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians? The dilemma of death. That's the, that's the burden. People are dying. There are some folks being baptized for the dead. And Paul is saying, some of you people in Corinth, in Corinth have forgotten about the resurrection of the body. Some, because it doesn't make logical sense to you, and you figure, what kind of body does a guy have if he rises from the dead, Paul? He considers that question. Others, they just don't have any confidence that the dead are going to rise, and so they've forsaken the doctrine of the physical resurrection of the saints. And the whole 15th chapter is written in order to correct that great and serious heresy. And he first establishes it in the resurrection of Christ. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead bodily, folks, you don't have any comfort of having been delivered from your sins. There's no solution to your sin problem if Christ is still dead. What are you going to, how are you going to call, why are you even going to church at Corinth and acting like Christians? There's no Christianity if Christ didn't rise from the dead. And then he says, because Christ rose from the dead, he's the first fruits of the rest of the crop that they're going to rise too. In Adam all died, all those in Christ will live. And he grounds our bodily resurrection in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What's he doing? He's showing us that we do not need to fear physical death as our ultimate enemy. Christ has provided the establishment of victory over that. And yet he says, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. But lest you grow frustrated and weary and confused as to why Christians still die and it doesn't look like Christ has defeated death... They that are Christ's will rise at his coming. In its biblical order, it was not God's purpose that they all rise in the first coming, but that they all rise at the second coming. And that's when the saying at the last of this chapter, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? When is that going to happen? At the last trump, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Verse 51. 
in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, not the next to the last one, not one of the last seven, at the last one. For the trumpet shall sound. The trumpet. It's the same one that's going to gather the elect from the four winds. The trumpet shall sound. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible. In other words, there's not going to be anybody left to be corrupted. And we shall be changed. The living saints, the dead saints. What's happened when that happens? Death is swallowed up in victory. When verse 53 says, This corruptible must put on incorruption. Mortal must put on immortality. Now that's at the last trump when Jesus comes. But when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So when we rise, death will be put under the feet of Christ. And that's the last enemy. So he has reigned until all his enemies are under his feet. And the very last one to go down will be death at the resurrection, at his coming. There will be no need for a future reign on this world to put any more enemies down. The last one's already gone. Does that make sense? Now, I think you've got to do a lot of twisting of Scripture to, to miss that. I think you've got to be prejudiced to miss that. That's my opinion. I would say that to some of my brethren who disagree with me with a smile. But I have to tell you, I have yet to see an argument that explains the logic of these texts put together. And I don't think I've artificially put them together. They're all dealing with the same subject. Now, by, by my necessity, we've had to introduce the doctrine of the last judgment and the doctrine of the resurrection of the saints in this. But that's not what I'm concentrating on today. Right now, I'm concentrating on the full revelation of the glorious kingdom of Christ with no opportunity for later decline. The reason it will not decline later is there are no more enemies to rise up against it. There's no more corruption to dwindle it. It's permanent. It's forever. It's the final version of the kingdom of God. And it's on the new heaven and a new earth. And at that time, everything in the heavens and the earth, under the earth, in the sea, and everything that dwells in them is going to bow down and declare, this is the king. Every tongue is going to confess and every knee shall bow. Some willingly and some, there ain't no other choice. But they're all going to do it. Not going to be anybody left to deal with after that. It's at that same time, he separates the sheep from the goats forever. Do you see that picture? Now, that's not as complicated as some of these schemes of prophecy that some of us have grown up hearing. It's, the chart wouldn't take up near as much space if we wrote all that on it. But you see, we don't need to have a complicated system. There is a lot about it we don't understand, and there will be surprises, no doubt, for all of us, especially as to the timing of it. But that does not mean that it's some complex system that innocent, nice, ignorant folks aren't supposed to study and figure out. It doesn't mean you just throw up your hand and say, oh, who's right? The texts make it plain that Jesus is going to come again to finish something that he started the first time. And what he started was the abolishing of sin and its consequences. And the last rest vestige of that consequence is death. 
And when he comes, it's gone and death is swallowed up in victory and the saints then rejoice. Right now we live for that day by faith. One day we shall see it. I can hardly imagine what that hour will be like when we see it. Death. No more. And I tell you, there won't even be a cormorant that'll die in that day. There'll be no more oil spills. There'll be no more wars. No more tears. I'm comfortable with that interpretation of my Bible. But in the few minutes that remain, I want at least to introduce the second portion and then draw some conclusions. The second concomitant event or reality associated with the coming of Christ is what we've seen in 2 Peter 3. The complete renovation of the whole universe with no possibility of further corruption. I just intimated that in the statement I've just made. The complete renovation of the whole universe with no possibility of further corruption. We've declared that at that time there will be the full revelation of the glorious kingdom of Christ with no opportunity for later decline. Now we're saying that there will be a complete renovation of the whole universe with no possibility of further corruption. The two texts I want to address your attention to in the minutes that remain. First, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. An interesting statement by the Lord Jesus. Matthew 19, 28. Peter has declared to the Lord, Lord, behold, we've left all to follow you. I hope everyone in this place will be able to say that when you walk out of here today. That you've forsaken all to follow Jesus. That's really the, the issue, isn't it? That's the question you've got to get answered, and you better get it answered quickly. Peter says, we have. Lord, we've forsaken all to follow you. And Jesus says in verse 28, Verily I say unto you that you who have followed me in the regeneration... When the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of His glory, you also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I don't have time to discuss what's meant by the twelve thrones, the twelve tribes, and the judging of them. But I will state that he's saying, he uses this term, regeneration. And he's speaking of the day he comes and sits on his throne. It's the throne of judgment, where his people, the apostolic church, will judge with him. They'll judge all the people of God. They'll judge all the peoples. But what's going to happen? He calls it the regeneration. What does he mean by that? It's the day when the whole universe is going to be renewed, regenerated, remade, recreated, rebuilt, redone. New generation. That's what he's saying. Little phrase, often missed, in the regeneration. That's what Peter refers to in Acts 3, the restoration of all things. And that then directs us to 2 Peter chapter 3 for our final consideration. And I don't think we'll get through it, but I think it'll help us to get our foundation laid for next time. 2 Peter 3. Remember what we read. We're saying that the complete renovation of the whole universe is going to happen when Jesus comes. And there'll be no possibility for further corruption when that happens. It's going to be complete. All corruption and mortality and decay is going to be removed. And we're stating how it's going to happen. And that's the point of this message. 
How's God going to finish sin and move its consequences from the universe? Second Peter 3 tells us. Verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief. Any doubt that it's going to come. And what's going to happen in the day of the Lord? Now you say that, well, the day of the Lord, that's what happens after the tribulation. Well, I agree with you. It happens after the tribulation, just like Jesus said in Matthew 24, after this whole period of the church under tribulation. Whether there's an intensifying of that at the end of this time, I don't know. I won't argue with it. It very possibly could be. But that doesn't change the point. The second coming of Christ has always been after the tribulation. It's going to come at the end of the great period of persecution of the church. You say, but see, there's been a secret rapture seven years before that. And there's nothing in the Bible that ever even mentions anything like that. It's not there. You have to put it in. It's not there. Well, what about the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4? That's this. That's the gathering of the elect. That's the raising of the dead and the translating of the living. At, the, at His coming, at His glorious throne coming. The day of the Lord will come in which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements shall be dissolved with fervent heat and the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. What we're saying is, this is the end of the world as we know it. Now he's talking about the coming of Christ. Back up in verse 4. The issue and question and problem? Scoffers who are saying, where's the promise of his coming? Not of his third coming or the second phase of his second coming, his coming, singular. The church knew nothing of anything other than one more coming. There was a promise that he was going to come. Why isn't he come? Why is the delay? He's not coming. That was the problem the scoffer had. It's been 2,000 years. It looks like he's not fulfilled his promise. Where is the promise of his coming? The saints are preaching, the Lord's coming. You better get prepared to meet God. The sinner's saying, ah, where's the evidence of that? Everything continues on as it did since the foundation of the, since the fathers fell asleep. The world's been this way. Nothing's changed. What they're saying is the same thing that many in Noah's day were saying. You, rain? Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Surrounded by an ungodly people whose only thoughts were continually immoral and ungodly, preached for 120 years righteousness. There were only seven that joined him. They were in his family. And there was some evidence that there were some residual problems in them. The man preached to a generation, couldn't believe there was any evidence that it was ever going to rain so much to flood the world. It never rained any yet, apparently. But God said it's going to rain. And Noah acted on God's word and moved with fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Now the modern generation is saying, where's the scientific evidence that the world is ever going to burn up with fire? Now some are so Saganish in their refusal to reckon with the reality of the existence of the living God that they want to believe the earth is going to somehow get destroyed by man. The ultimate humanist view, pessimism. Man's in control and man's going to blow it. So some of us superior men need to save the rest of you from your ignorance. That's that mentality. Some of us enlightened ones. See, that's not what the Bible says. You say, well, Pastor, you expect me to live my life on the basis of just words in a book? No, God expects you to live your life on the basis of those words in that book. 
the same as Noah did. One of eight saved from the whole world because only one who listened to God against all the scientific evidence. Where's the promise that the universe is going to come apart? And some cataclysmic things continue the same as they all. And he says, this they willingly forget. There's an act, there's a thing that was done in history that their ancestors handed down to them by oral tradition. Even those outside of Israel have heard about that. But they don't want to believe it. They willingly forget this, that that old world was compacted in water and stored up with water and water was on the canopy above it and beneath it and God opened the windows of heaven and let the canopy collapse and opened up the fountains of the deep and all that probably molten and uh, watery stuff from underneath all the fountains and all the fountains met together and flooded the earth. That happened. And that water, that world perished. They forget that happened. They shouldn't be shocked if something else happens equal to that or worse than that later. That same world, by God's word, that destroyed it by water has been reserved for fire the next time the day's coming the renovation of the universe and this event that's contemplated is the event of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the word parousia is used in this passage it is used 17 times I believe in the New Testament to refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ it is the same word used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the rapture of the church, the parousia. It is the same word used in 2 Thessalonians 2 about judging the man of sin with the breath of his mouth when he comes. It is the same word used in 1 Corinthians 15 in the resurrection of the saints. And it is the same word used in Matthew 24 in the judgment of the world. Where is the sign of his parousia? When the saints are going to be raised... The rapture of the church, the judgment of the wicked, and the destruction of the world. That's the coming. That's the word used. Don't let anybody else uh, bend all that out of proportion and say, well, this is a different coming than the other. It's the parousia, the coming. And what's going to happen? Well, first of all, the elements. The heavens are going to pass away with a great noise. You know what that word great noise means? It literally means the roar of a hissing fire. Now, it's hard for us to use those words to describe what that's going to be like. But if you can imagine the whole universe on fire in one big roar, you know what a fire is like if you've ever been near an old building catching on fire. We've been near one. It's a roar, but there's a hiss. And this word in the, in the original is, is an onomatopoeia word. It, it has the sound of the hiss in it. There's going to be a roaring hiss as the heavens pass away. And that word pass away means dissolve, disintegrate. And then it goes on to say, and the elements. Now some refer that to heavenly bodies. But I think the better translation and understanding of that is the elemental structure of the universe, the atomic makeup of the universe. And because the word literally means things that are arranged in an orderly row, things neatly arranged, orderly. You who know atomic uh, nuclear physics and understand the makeup of matter can easily see here the same reference to, in Colossians 1 about the Lord Jesus by whom all things hold together this the elemental material structure of the universe is going to 
And the word dissolved means literally, the word literally means the separating of the elements and the breaking up of the compounds. In other words, what we're describing here is that one day Jesus Christ is going to come and the stuff called matter is going to be dissolved into separated and blown out. Undone. Undone. Just as though, if you had time to do it immediately, you could totally dismantle a complex Lego house. All the little parts that you put together and structured up and all the neat inner workings of colors and angles and one day you just... And you lay them all back out in their separate little units. Unorganized with no form and no structure. That's what the Lord's going to do. I do not believe, and I agree with many of the commentators on this, that he's going to make it disappear and not exist. There's not going to be an annihilation. It's going to be a, a complete unstructuring and a restructure. Nevertheless, according to his promise, we look for a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to redo this one, wash it out, burn it up, try it by fire, purify it, and redo it. But he's going to break it down into its fundamental basic elements. I mean, it's not going to be an atom, undone, untouched, undealt with, unfired. We're talking about a nuclear holocaust. The likes of which Carl Sagan never dreamed. It's going to be brought from the outside... It's not going to be done from the inside. And there's not going to be a particle of matter left unaffected by it. A great roar of a hissing flame in which the elemental structure of the universe will be separated and broken up. And the word burned up, the works, the earth and the works in verse 10 that are therein shall be burned up. That word literally means discovered. You know what that means? It means it's going to be exposed to the wrathful eye of God. Burned up literally means every elemental portion of the whole created universe is going to be exposed to the wrathful eye of God. It's going to break it all down and glare in his wrath against every element of it and treat it in his wrath. And redo it and put it right. All that which fell when Adam fell. All the corruption that came when Adam fell. All the disintegration of the order of the universe that began to happen when Adam fell. He's going to put back right. The last Adam is going to fix what the first Adam broke. Brethren, I don't have the time to go down the list of all the effects and all the things that's going to change for you. Who are in Christ. But we do know the Lord speaks of no tears. And you just think of all the things that bring tears. None of the causes for tears will exist in that new world order. Not the one President Bush is speaking about. But the new world order. I personally think the devil has created a counterfeit for it. I think that's what's going on. There is a new world order coming. There is a new heaven and a new earth in which dwell righteousness. And it's a permanent thing that is never going to corrupt again. Corruption has disappeared. Mortality is swallowed up. And the kingdom of Christ will be perfect and pure. I trust you want to live there. I trust you understand that it all has to do with sin. And that the only ones who will live there 
and frolic there and rejoice there and gamble as the calves in the stalls and in the fields will be those that want to deal with their sins the way God wants to deal with their sins. You don't get to go there simply because God is a softy in heaven. Not all creatures are destined for glory. Not everyone in this world is going to go there. We saw a portion of a, of a movie on television one time in which somebody very beloved to some of the characters died. And they were discussing a couple of them. Where do you think he is? Do you think this is it? Is this the end? Is death all there is? And there was not even the hint of a suggestion that there was a possibility of any place to go other than annihilation or bliss. And they both decided that he sh- there was got to be more after this and no telling where he is having fun now. And you hear some of these wretched eulogies in modern church funerals where a priest or a preacher who knows nothing about the individual or even if he does denies that he knows it speaking words of euphoria about the future of this nice person without even reckoning with the reality that there's coming a day when the only thing that's going to dwell in God's new world is going to be righteousness. The Lord Jesus is going to come and he's going to shake this place and he's going to destroy it. The Bible calls it the day of the Lord. This same passage later calls it the day of God. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ. King James calls it the day of Christ in 2 Thessalonians 2, but it's also called the day of the Lord there. The day, Hebrews 10 calls it. The day of judgment, according to 2 Peter 2, and this section of 2 Peter 3, 1 John. The day of His wrath, Revelation 6, the day. I want to conclude by reminding you what that day means. Alexander Nisbet says, This day will produce a dreadful sight when this great workmanship, being on fire, shall all rush down and all the delights of wicked men shall be burnt up before their eyes. The Lord thereby testifying His displeasure against men's placing their happiness in these things and their defiling of them by making them subservient to their lusts. We're talking about the day of judgment. When Adam fell, the world fell under the curse. The second Adam will deliver it from that curse. This world is going to be tried by fire and purified, just as all the ministers of the gospel are going to be tried by fire. The day shall declare it, the scripture says. The world shall pass away, the Lord says. Heaven and earth shall pass away, he says. Yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. The end of the world is coming. Even if a man tells you that with a triangular shaped box hanging over his body in in Times Square. And you have little regard for his integrity. He's telling the truth. The world's going to end. And all the ground on which we stood our carnal feet is going to be dissolved out from under us. And all these pleasures that this mortal body has been able to pursue are going to be gone. And this body is going to be done over again. And everything on which we depended and all the things on which we trusted are going to be dissolved before our eyes. The men of the world are going to weep when their beloved city of Babylon decays and burns before their sight. 
The men of the world are going to weep and all their savings and all their stocks and all their bonds and all their absolutely secure investment burn up. And they're going to mourn. And many in this, this room are going to mourn at all the time we wasted. And all the years we wasted. And all the times we neglected our children because we wanted an extra buck. And our kids are going to stand there and they're going to wish we'd taught them the Bible more. And that we'd told them that really there's only one thing that ultimately matters. It's all going to burn up, folks. Now, I could spend a lot of time harping on that. It would, be, it would weary you. But I tell you, I don't think we've harped on that enough. It's all going to burn up. What gets you worried? The rust on your automobile? What gets you upset and agitates and gives you ulcers? Your house... It's all going to burn up. Where are you giving your substance? Where are you putting your energies? About what are you praying most? What brings you to tears quickest and what makes you rejoice fastest? Most of the stuff that most of this world is using for their energy is burning up and is going to be dissolved. What are they going to have then? Simon Peter brings it to the conclusion when he says, seeing that these things are all going to burn up this way, what sort of persons ought you to be? Let it soak in. There's not going to come a period after that when you're going to have a chance to rethink your position and repent. There's no millennium after that. There'll be no more worldly pleasures. We're talking about the end. Learn from history, brethren. Don't be a scoffer. God's done it before. He said he was going to and he did. He said he's going to do it again. And he will. Few are going to be expecting it. Learn from the warnings of Scripture. I want to conclude by directing your attention to Proverbs chapter 1 verse 22. Proverbs 1, verse 22. Discipline your mind and your conscience to endure the sound doctrine of God's word so that you can act accordingly. Proverbs 1, 22. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? And scoffers delight them in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit upon you. I will make known my words to you, because I have called and you've refused. I've stretched out my hand and no man is regarded, but you have said it not, all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh in the day of your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes. When your fear comes as a storm and your calamity comes on as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then will they call upon me. But I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of Jehovah. They would not of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. 
Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the backsliding of the simple shall slay them and the careless ease of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkens unto me shall dwell securely and shall be quiet without fear of evil. Nothing could be simpler and clearer than this biblical injunction. Those carelessly at ease, neglecting to heed the warnings of God that the end is coming. The end of all things. Dear brethren, do not be found among those who will then cry for God's mercy and remind him of promises in his Bible and talk about the gospel and the blood of Jesus and Calvary and he won't hear. Now is the hour, the day of saving grace. When Jesus comes That day will have passed. Let us be prepared before. And the only way I know to make sure. And sometimes this grips me in such a way that I panic in my prayer. I say, Lord, let me get through my prayer before you bring it to an end. I want it to grip us that way. I want you to be so scared you're not even going to get your confession out before the Lord ends it. Because that could happen, brethren. I want you to take this seriously. And I want you to prepare yourself and your family to meet God. Because those who hearken to the Lord shall dwell securely and shall be quiet without fear of evil. We haven't preached what we've preached to make saints fear, not ultimate fear. We don't want to impose upon God's people a slavish fear. But we have preached what we've preached to bring us back to reality and down to earth and to get us in our perspective. Dear brethren, what could happen in the Middle East is nothing. To what is going to happen when Jesus comes back. Let us prepare for that day. And we will dwell securely. And we'll not be shaken soon by any fear that man can put upon us. Maybe God is showing our whole generation how vulnerable we are to fear. Because of our lack of having heeded his word and built up the security of confidence in the scriptures. A little scud missile falls on a town around the halfway around the other side of the world and kills somebody and we fall apart. One in New York City in the same day, hundreds died from direct participation in sin, unreproved. And nobody seems to notice. You want peace? Run to the Prince of Peace. You want removal of death? Run to the victor. You want security when the burning comes? You better be found in the ark. May God give us help and hope and and confidence in his son. And may he deliver any of you who are not prepared children. God's not going to let you into heaven just because you're a child. It'll be because of his dear son. Trust in Jesus. And don't be afraid of that day because when that day comes and everything burns up, you won't. If you're in Jesus. Get it settled today and wait upon the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we are incapable of painting with our own abilities these things as they ought to be painted. Our words are inadequate, woefully lacking. But your spirit of holiness can take the words read and the words announced in the preaching and reading of Scripture and you can apply it to hearts in a powerful way. Do it, O Lord. Make us to believe your word and to prepare for the coming day of destruction of ungodly men. 
and deliver all of us in this place from that destruction. Oh Lord, make us aware of and sensitive to the truth. Help us to see beyond the blinders of this present age and to fit ourselves for the age to come. Thank you for your Son in whom we may be freed from our sin and guilt and live expectantly. That we may actually desire the day when the elements will melt with fervent heat. May it be so in every conscience this day. For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.